Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Digital Capital Advisors Weekly Fireside Chat Series. We're excited to have you here, as always. Um, for those of you that don't know at this point, I'm Andrew Daniel. I'm a senior investment banker here at DCA. Uh, Digital Capital Advisors is an investment bank. We're based in the Empire State Building in New York City. We've got an office in Berlin and then a presence out on the West Coast uh, of the U.S. This show and series is part of our 10-year anniversary celebration, which we just celebrated here in early September. Um, and uh, today we are joined by a world-class entrepreneur and founder, per usual, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Cut.com, Chris Rudy. Rudy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, why don't, why don't we start as we always do? I think it'd be great to give everybody a basis of Cut.com, what Cut does, where you guys have come from, and a little bit on the evolution. I think that'd be a really great starting point, and then we can run from there. Yeah, that sounds great. So um, Cut is a, we call it a misfit media lab, uh, which is kind of a inside joke a little bit because you know we came up with that name as a way to distinguish ourselves from digital publishers. But the reality is that our business looks very much the same as uh, BuzzFeed or Vice from a business standpoint. Um, I think maybe where we deviate a little bit and kind of the the impetus behind creating the company in the first place was the idea that uh, that there were stories or there was a type of storytelling that wasn't occurring um, in, in some of these other companies um, that we felt had a place. And it's really like the idea of provoking real conversations that lead to transformative decision-making. And so our mission is to make people comfortable with ambiguity, one awkward conversation at a time. And if you've watched any, uh, any cut content, you will understand fully how that plays out. Um, the difference I would say between when we started the company and today, the primary difference is that when we started the company, the, the, you know, we're, we create IP like any digital publisher, but the only type of IP that we created um, back in 2014 and 2015 when the company was getting off the ground was IP that revolved around video format. So it was really about the objective was to you know, make people comfortable with ambiguity, creating these awkward conversations inside of digital video formats. Um, we've since evolved uh, to a place where we essentially are focusing on three different mechanisms for promoting that mission. The first is is still digital video that will always be a fundamental part of the business, even as digital video expands into new platforms. And then the other two, which have increasingly come into focus over the last couple of years in particular, are uh, a business that focuses on developing products, predominantly at this point, games, um, those games being tied to the same mission of, of having these conversations, um, and then also to developing TV formats. Um, you may have seen a format on Netflix called, uh, I think it's called 100 Humans. This is something that we did not make, but that is something we would make something like, um, you know, as we continue to grow that business. So that's kind of the short intro to cut our three areas of business, our mission, um, and, and our origin story. No, I think that's really helpful. And I'll add that, uh, as you know, Rudy, I'm a huge fan of your content. So I would highly encourage everybody to go check it out because it's, uh, it's pretty good stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about broad scope, the evolution of digital entertainment and how you think about it, um, you know, when that comes to video content specifically, but the evolution of the digital entertainment space overall and, and maybe how that shifted over time. Yeah, so I think the... For me, the, the entertainment in general is constantly in flux. Um, it's really easy to forget 
that media has always been an industry rooted in technology. Sure. Um, and, and so I believe that the evolution of the technology will continue to be the driving force in how content is distributed and consumed. Um, and so we've seen that obviously from kind of the studio era of the Lou Wassermans of the world um, and, and MCA and Universal and these big studios, which are still very powerful, albeit in different ways today than they were 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Um, but I think what it all boils down to is who has control of distribution. Um, and, and the big kind of sea change that occurred over the last 20 years or so, really with the advent of Real Player and then YouTube, which kind of uh, democratized in some sense the, the video distribution pipeline, um, is that the gatekeeper is now you and me. Um, if you look, if you think about, you know, the most popular, one of the most popular TikTokers in the world, Charlie D'Amelio, she's just a person who has distribution on TikTok, who is now, you know, hanging out with Kim Kardashian. We could talk, we'd have a whole nother webinar about how I feel about that. But <laughs> the point is that that distribution has changed in a fundamental way. And even the difference between TikTok and YouTube is profound in the sense of, Kind of what the audience expects, and and how you actually upload things. Um, TikTok being much more, um, I guess, user friendly to put it one way, and also much easier to be creative on because that's the whole point. So, kind of the short answer to your question is, I think that the job of a company like ours is to not be platform agnostic, which you hear a lot of people say, because we actually deeply care about the platforms that we're on, but to be platform specific and to understand how the features of a particular distribution flat platform um, interact with the features of our content and then do our best to tell stories in a way that resonates with those audiences. Um, so, yeah. I think you first a few things there. And, you know, as we think about the progression, we think about it kind of linearly in the sense that we probably started, we think about digital media. I think if you bring in entertainment more broadly and you have to speak about TV and movies and all that kind of stuff. But if you think digital media specifically, um, and maybe layer some of the entertainment in, you know, we started in a place where it was going to a destination site to go read things, less even video content, just generally going places to read. Maybe it was community. You can imagine things like Reddit or others where you're going to engage. But it was relatively stale and static and didn't have the same level of engagement or interest, even though it might have been back and forth and it felt immersive to some extent, but it was mainly just reading. And then we progressed to making that kind of an open web thing. So Reddit, again, is the example there. Can we go from a single place that we go to a community to increase the level of engagement to make it more interesting? And then for us, I think video has been the progression from there, right? And all of a sudden, you can create these video experiences that as a content base is a lot more interesting um, and fun to watch and drives higher engagement, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I think from the next step from here, we think about immersive, right? And immersive is yet to visualize, but we do think we're getting there one day. Um, and we're experimenting with that now a little bit. We think about um, social, Snapchat, Instagram, some of the face filters as being an AR Trojan course, if you will, to get as close to immersive experiences, but we're still a little while out from that. But for us, as we think about where kind of the consumer is going in the sense of where they can actually view distribution, scale, and engagement, which is kind of the key drivers we think about today's modern media business, you know, it's really about understanding where can you create community, right? And that it's not just the content you're putting out, which probably today has to be in video to be interesting. Um, but then also, what are you doing with that video, right? Is it creating an effective community? And for us, that community doesn't exist just in YouTube. It doesn't exist just in TikTok. It doesn't exist just in Snapchat. 
it has to be, as you're pointing out, specific to that platform and give the platform the credibility, right? Just saying we're going to put it everywhere is probably not the right answer. But at the same time, it has to be scaled across communities to say we've genuinely done this in multiple places and we're engaging people in different ways across those places. And if you can build content that empowers that community, we think that's the, the key driver of differentiation. And that also sets you up really well for monetization, right? And we think about how this industry has evolved in time as well. You know, advertising revenue is kind of the, the cursed child, if you will, of the history of these businesses um, in the sense that advertising has been volatile, right? And this is true for media businesses. It's true for ad tech businesses. Um, and so there's been all these new revenue streams that everybody who's listening has seen evolve, um, whether it be e-commerce, whether it be subscription, whether it be selling originals, whether it be whatever, um, that have helped to diversify many of the traditional players in their transition to new video platforms. And so I think for us, as we think about the modern media business that's exciting to go look at, you know, it's the idea that they are genuinely converted on a content creation basis. And we think that's a really difficult thing. It's easy to say, but the legacy guys struggle with that. It has to be distributed over lots of places, but in a meaningful way, right? That the scale and engagement is genuine. It's not just doing it to do it. Uh, and then that lastly, monetization is diversified, right? And we're showing diversified monetization across the board. So that's how I think about the, the evolution. And you know, I think what that naturally poses is, what does that mean for new distribution? What is the new level of scale that's acceptable? You know, what's the engagement mean, right? And how do you understand that? And I think a lot of that is in flux on a daily basis to understand how to quantify a lot of those things. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think one of the things you said that resonated with me and, and really reflects the way that I think about it is that from the very beginning, um, we've, you know, we have... I think 12 billion views, which to some other holding companies is not a lot, but for a company that's never been bigger than, you know, yeah. 33 people is in Seattle, you know, making Surprising. these formats is a lot. Um, and, you know, an audience of 25 million uh, across these platforms. And, and so we talk about those things, but we often don't talk about what they mean. Um, and if they're important, we kind of sure. just assume that they're important because they're ways to differentiate us from other people who are doing a similar thing. But for me, what makes a viewership number or an audience number important is actually another metric. Maybe it's the amount of revenue that you're generating from, uh, from some kind of a direct business, direct consumer business. Maybe it's the sure. revenue you're generating from advertising. Probably not because it's very indirect in most cases. Um, but I think to your point, the, the way that we view this entire landscape and the way that you know we'll continue to try to optimize and focus the business even as the world around us is constantly evolving is by understanding you know what the vanity metrics are and what the metrics are that will actually lead uh, to success in our business and and with our mission um, and what's interesting right is like that, as you said, these things are constantly evolving, maybe in a way that they never have before. And so maybe that's the defining feature of, of modern distribution is that there's the business models are constantly in flux. Certainly, you, you know, you could append advertising um, onto them as you go. Although, to my knowledge, you still can't make money on Instagram through advertising as a creator. Yep. Um, but those are the types of things that I think a business like ours needs to be good at. Um, and so I think, you know, you didn't mention the word adaptation explicitly, but I think that is the, that is the coin of the realm in digital media sure. for a company in our position. 
um, and something that we constantly strive to do with these platforms. Sure, absolutely. And you know, we'll talk about monetization a little later on and perhaps how monetization has evolved because I think you guys have a very interesting monetization story and strategy. So I, I want to save that and really kind of unpack it. But you know, the adaptation is clearly a thoughtful point in the sense that that's what's killed the big guy, right? And that's where the big guys struggle, whoever the big guys you want to go point to, whether it's the, the really legacy folks who are coming from TV businesses and later digital media through acquisition and now have carried those businesses and or the previous wave of media companies, right, that are 10 years old now, that's the challenge. And they, they seem to be struggling with that adaptation of new content, new community, new revenue, and they're kind of lost in the world of, we really like to be a destination site, and we really like to monetize with ad revenue. And that's like, even though their boards are screaming and hollering, you know, that's where they're stuck. And so you guys are in that second wave, and, and so the adaptation is a little bit easier, but as time goes by, it becomes more and more severe to say, we need to continue to evolve and adapt. So completely yeah. agree with you there. And I think what's interesting is I think about the progression of the broader industry, if you will, is really the idea that all of a sudden COVID in a way, and we'll talk again about COVID more specifically in a little bit, but COVID in a way has brought attention to the fact that there's a content shortage that exists because creating content is so hard, right? And so as I think about the landscape, you know, the content to us that's the most valuable, which is the kind of content you guys tend to create, is short form formatted content. Right? Can you create relatively short form formatted content that's reproducible at the similar quality or better every single time and do that across a very long series while still grabbing attention, right? And if you can layer e-commerce in that even better. But what's happened is COVID has obviously had an effect on the amount of content that can be created, which we'll talk about. And so that's created some supply and demand challenges that exist. But all of a sudden, this hunt for really high quality formatted content existing in YouTube, existing on OTT, being distributed on linear, wherever it might live, everybody is on the hunt. And so this short form formatted content really emerges as uh, kind of a light coming from digital media by saying that if you can own that format, everything else kind of begins to fall in place in traditional digital media evolution and adaption. I agree. Um, and I think it's always been it's always been core to our approach to development. Um, and to production, honestly, out of necessity, sure. Um, to make sure that we were developing things that were, you know, simple. Somebody pointed out to me the other day, which, believe it or not, I had not thought of. Uh, they actually thought it was a requirement of development that most of our titles are like two words or less, sure. um, and that you just get the concept, which I think is is something that we intentionally do. Um, but the idea is that you know, if you if you're forced to create these serialized formats and then you build them up from, from the, the ground up and not try to replicate other things out in the world and not throw a bunch of money at them to dress them up, then, and, and you have a philosophy undergirding the content that is meaningful, then you end up with something that resonates with people over time. Sure. And I think Cut's a good example of that. Um, and where it gets difficult is when you're trying to scale that, um, yeah. you know, so, so, you know, to our, our competitors in quotes, I would say like, that's their challenge is that they've, they've been really successful at creating a ton of scale, more successful than we have. Um, but I would say less successful at maintaining the quality of their formatting over that scale. Um, and so that's really a challenge for us going forward. 
I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. As I think about your business, that's the key, right? You guys have clearly demonstrated that you can create formatted, high-quality content consistently over time. You can get the scale that's reasonable given the size and resources of your business, right? You guys have clearly demonstrated scale. Is it the scale of a media empire? No, but it's because you're existing with a fraction, a sub-fraction of the resources, right? So the scale you've got is pretty tremendous. And the engagement, however you want to measure it, is very strong. And so I'd be curious how you guys think about that internally, right? As you think about building those shows, building that serialized content, you know, what goes through your guys' mind? How do you guys think about that? Can you provide some more color there? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really about, from my perspective, you know, you've taken a page out of the, the lean startup, right? Or the product development cycle, sure. where the idea is that you're trying to validate things um, as quickly as possible. And for us, a core part of validating a format, whether it's a game format or a video format or a linear format, is first asking whether or not it's on brand. So this has a series of questions that are really uh, qualitative and not at all quantitative and are important because that's how, um, that's how we ensure that, you know, our, our content is following, um, following our brand guidelines and serving our mission. And there's this really great example of a, of a, uh, something that I heard at the YouTube partner summit a couple of years ago from the GM of the Dodo where, she was going down the list of, of their kind of brand guidelines. And one of the things that she said was, um, in our content, the animal is the protagonist. Yeah. So just think about how that scales across everyone at the company, no matter who you're talking to, whether it's an editor, junior editor, senior editor, head of post-production producer, doesn't matter if you are watching a video and they know what that means, which is not super difficult to understand then they can decide whether something's on brand or not. So I think that's the first thing is, you know, we have this requirement as we're validating things that they follow our brand and we ask a series of questions about them. Um, and then the second is, is quantitative. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that really has always resonated with me about cut is that we're both mission driven in terms of making sure that our content is having a certain effect, but we're also pragmatic toward that end. And we used to say a good story demands to be shared. And, you know, I think the idea there is that if, if, if a video that we create or a format that we create is truly doing its job, then it will be successful. Um, then that's the validation. And so we kind of ask questions in three different buckets when we're trying to validate a format quantitatively. The first is about the format itself, where we ask questions like, is this provocative? Is it entertaining? Um, does it create in people a need state to share it? Because we know that this is predominantly the way how people vote on the internet is they share things or they retweet them. Um, and then we ask, you know, is the structure of the format optimized for the structure of the platform? So going back to what I said earlier, it's not just a matter of whether it's, um, of whether, you know, we're on a platform. It's a matter of whether we're developing specifically for it. So a good example of that, right, would be the difference between Facebook and YouTube where, on YouTube, you're probably either going to a video that you saw on YouTube because it was marketed to you yeah. and suggested or related videos, maybe at the end of another video, um, or you're going there because somebody sent you a link. So there's a high intent to go to that video, whether it's because you clicked on the thumbnail or not. Um, on Facebook though, you're scrolling through a newsfeed, whether it's with your thumb on your phone or in the browser. And so the job that you have to do with the opening of a video on Facebook is very different um, than it is on YouTube. 
And this changes the way that you shoot and edit and develop. Um, and then the second set of questions is about the platform. We kind of just got into one of the questions about the platform, but that's a question about the platform from the video perspective. Yeah. Um, and so the questions that are just about the platform are about the things that you do on a platform to optimize distribution. So metadata, thumbnails, titling, um, understanding, you know, whether there's, uh, some kind of marketing that you can do within the platform, understanding how the videos relate to each other on a platform through playlists or through suggested. And then the last element kind of of the process for us is continuous learning. Um, you know, I, I'm constantly saying to people, um, and I think this is a, a major tenet of the product development process that, um, that, that failure is great. The failure is not a bad thing. Um, uh, it's because failure always teaches you something. Sure. Success does not always teach you something though. Um, a lot of times success is due to luck. And so if we don't, if we're not learning from our failures and if we're not failing, if we're not, you know, taking enough risks to fail, then I think we're not doing it right. Um, and, and so that becomes a very central part of this process at the very end is like invalidating something. We want to make sure that, um, we're asking the question of what are we learning from each experiment categorically yeah. mapped to the categories we just went through. And then second, how are we using our, our learning to increase our chance of success in the future? Yeah. Yeah. As we talk about kind of content creation and your process through that, I think one of the things that's interesting about your business is having a channel, if you will, focused on kids. Um, and kids entertainment has gotten a lot of attention as of recent, whether it be edutainment, whether it be gaming content, uh, whether it be video content. I'd be very curious to get your perspective on the demographic, why you guys ended up there, and what your thinking is around that particular demographic. Yeah, cool. So we ended up there for a very... Uh, <laughs> a very random reason, right? As, as anybody listening who has built a business knows, um, you do a lot of things because, you know, that seem obvious looking backwards, but yeah. you do them because they weren't obvious and and then you do them and, and then they become obvious later on. Um, hindsight is twenty twenty, I guess. But Hi-Ho was actually born out of a, one of these types of things where I have 10 nieces and nephews. Um, I am not a parent, but I'm about as close as you can be to a parent. <laughs> um, and I was at home in Colorado uh, visiting with my brother and his three kids. And they always wanted to watch Hi-Ho. Hi-Ho Kids is the is the channel you're referring to. And uh, it was not called Hi-Ho yet, though. What they wanted to watch was Kids Try, which was a series that was distributed on cut. Yeah. Um, and so I put on Kids Try on the, on the TV and we watched Kids Try. And then the next video that comes on is grandma smoking weed for the first time. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, blocking the screen with my hands. And it was a whole thing. And, you know, I'm no genius, but I thought, you know, maybe that's not great <laughs> to have <laughs> that video being recommended to kids right after they've watched this explicitly kids programming yeah. um, that we always said is meant for, for co-watching, which I'll go into more for a second. So I went back to Seattle and uh, we talked about whether we should create another channel, whether we should resource against this idea of focusing on a brand uh, for co-watching, and and then Hi Ho was born, um, and and so it was born kind of in reverse, right? It was born as a 
an exercise in appropriately creating the appropriate frame for the content, not as like a business opportunity. Um, but since then, we've learned a lot about what the business opportunity is and, and also how it ties into Cut's broader mission. And I think that what's interesting is HiHo is also an extension of the same mission, again, which is uh, you know to, to make people comfortable with ambiguity. Um, and in, in this case, it's, it's kids. And so we have kind of a different mission or, or a moniker that we apply to that channel in particular, which is to promote empathy through play. So where for adults, it's making people comfortable with ambiguity through these awkward conversations. For kids, it's promoting empathy, which is which is one way to make people comfortable with ambiguity um, through these formats that are really fun and lighthearted. And I think the, the distinguishing feature of Hi-Ho is, um, is the fact that we always intended it to be um, a co-watching experience. So... I'm going to use Pixar as an analogy, although I'm not trying to say that we're Pixar because Pixar is, you know, way more brilliant than I could ever <laughs> call hi-ho at this point. Um, but the one of the things I always loved about Pixar, of many things that I loved about Pixar, uh, was that their content was equally entertaining for adults and children. Like there was something for everybody. Sure. Um, and so you can watch a Pixar movie as a kid and then go watch it again as an adult and have a completely different experience, which I think is a really magical thing that yeah. brings families together. Um, and, and that's how we think about HiHo as well, that we want a video like Kids Try to not just be entertaining for kids, but to be entertaining for parents as well. I think kind of moving past now how we got to where HiHo is, I think the, the future for HiHo the thing that makes it difficult right now from, from my perspective, because you asked a general question about kids content sure. is that we're in this world where, um, where these platforms are, you know, are essentially just a pass through distribution opportunity. And they're really powerful in a way because humans are psychologically vulnerable. Um, and we saw that with Cambridge Analytica. We see it in a million other little ways. We've always seen it with marketing because that's what marketing is. Um, but I think when you're talking about kids, you have to be way more responsible um, about how you're you're treating that and how you're um, and how you're developing content and making sure that uh, even if you're not crossing any legal lines, that you're not for us crossing any lines that run afoul of our mission. Because I think what you'll find if you talk to parents is that parents, at least the ones that I know, um, including my own siblings, that giving them an iPad to watch video is a way that they get through their day, especially during COVID, sure. because they can't possibly be attending to their kids at every moment. And these devices and this content has become... Uh, a thing that they do to help distract them. Um, and a lot of the content that's out there is not things that the parents particularly enjoy or feel like is very edifying for their kids, Sure, but their kids love it. Um, so I think what we're trying to do is in, in crafting this co-watching mission is think about the longer term is think about the fact that the world is in a place where, um, in a rather solipsistic way, we're all being driven into our little corners in under the guise of community because 
the fact that we can all find people who have the same interests as us um, is actually making us in many ways more lonely uh, because we're interacting digitally instead of in person. Um, and we want to bring that back together. And I think HiHo's mission, which is a lofty one, is, is to do that um, by creating content that parents and kids are both watching together and learning from and becoming more comfortable with each other as a result of. So it's kind of a long answer, but I think, I think we have to be really careful. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm going to make a transition now that after an answer like that seems uh, amusing maybe, but towards monetization, um, because okay. I, I think about, you know, the, the kids entertainment space, and I think there are a lot of businesses that exist there today. I think that from a content distribution perspective, you guys take a particular caution with regards to the content you're creating, which does you a favor with regards to brand and regards to actual viewership. And I think there are many examples, particularly in gaming, where the lines begin to blur, right? And allowing kids to exist in pseudo-legal scenarios, um, in content experiences that maybe aren't healthy, uh, with other users where interactivity might be even higher in a gaming setting, et cetera. And so that's one that from an interest perspective amongst media companies and amongst toy manufacturers and amongst everybody who wants to target that demographic is really compelling. And the challenge has been monetization, I think. And as I go down to the bigger picture about monetization, which is where I went ahead, you know, I think Cut and all of your properties really monetize in a pretty unique sense, right? I think as we were speaking about before this, you know, you guys do a phenomenal job of creating really high quality e-commerce experiences without kind of the, the toxic view that I think many other digital media businesses have leveraged to get to e-commerce, right? It's not just about selling t-shirts and hats or whatever. It's about selling inherently viral products, in your case, games, um, that ultimately help to further expand the virality of the business. And so what I'd like to do is transition towards monetization and, and get a sense of, you know, how do you guys think about monetization, knowing that, at least from my perspective, you're one of the leaders on the monetization front via e-commerce, um, and of course, how that fits against your broader business strategy. Yeah, so historically, when we were starting out, even up until a couple of years ago, um, we were just a very small digital publisher. So we, you know, we had a small team, we produced a relatively small amount of content, but it always did really well organically. Right. And so we were throwing off revenue from uh, from advertising, which as we've talked about is, is really the core business of a lot of uh, traditional publishers, but also even in the digital space. Um, but we always saw advertising as a business that we didn't really want to invest into because, huh. because we looked at the wavelength of kind of the costs of direct selling advertising, the up and down, of the revenues as like a, not a great long-term strategy for us yeah. because you just have to raise a lot of money, I think, to play that game and you hire a hundred people in sales and then you fire a hundred people and it's just not what we wanted for cut. And so we always had this ambition to develop a valuable relationship with our audience, which I do not think advertising is a valuable relationship with the audience. Um, and we just had no idea about how to do that. Um, as it turned out, the way that we, diversified our revenue from a place where you know we're relying on this kind of programmatic passive revenue to where we are today is the first step was to take one of these formats which was obviously uh conducive to being a game which was fear pong sure. and and i you know we we had been talking for a long time about um 
about how to do this in the right way. And then it was kind of obviously you just got to take the first step and, and do something. Um, and so that step for us was uh, to create basically an email uh, survey where we asked people um, if they were interested in this game called Fear Pong that totally didn't exist. Um, and, and we asked them and then 80,000 people said, yeah, I'll sign up. Let me know when this is a game. So that was validation of kind of the first premise, which was that there was interest in this idea of us making a game. The second premise is like, well, people pay for it. You can actually collapse those things together. We realized by doing pre-orders and stuff, um, but we didn't know that at the time. Um, and, and so we put this on Kickstarter and Fear Pong launched uh, in 2017, raised a hundred thousand dollars, which we put into, um, we had already really developed the game when the Kickstarter launched the questions, the design, but we put that into ordering it and then fulfilling it to customers. That game continues to go to today and, and is profitable. And we're actually releasing a couple expansion packs for the holidays this year. Um, and then we did the same thing with truth or drink, which was another game, uh, show that was on our YouTube channel that we had already developed. I think what, and so that business is doing really well. That did twice as much on Kickstarter as fear pong and is doing about twice as many sales. Um, I think what, what I really love about this business for us, and maybe the point of differentiation between, um, how we're viewing direct consumer and how other people are, at least in the short term is that for us, it's not about just adding more revenue streams, although that is important. Um, it's about whether or not number one, we're fulfilling our mission through the mechanism of whatever this core business is. And number two, um, whether we're uh, actually able to tie it into our content strategy in such a way that there are uh, there's essentially a gestalt principle where the sum of a games business where we develop game formats plus a video business where we develop video formats is greater than uh, or sorry, that the whole of those two things is greater than the sum yeah. of its parts. Yeah. And what we're seeing now, and we're really just getting started. And so it's a very exciting time. Um, but we've sold 150,000 games, um, which for us is like kind of a miracle because it's a lot of what's gotten us through this year um, is that business. Um, and what we're seeing is that, you know, to have somebody in game development talk to, to a producer who's casting or who's in video development is a very powerful and positive thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think I answered your question. I think that, yeah, it's, it's super exciting for us to, to be able to fulfill our mission and also to, uh, you know, to keep existing as a business. I think it gives you a lot of credibility against all the other stuff that goes to your business, right? It, it's one thing to say, we're building these really unique communities. We're demonstrating scale. We're doing all these kinds of things, but being able to build something that, again, one plus one equals three, as you're pointing out, really says the community is strong enough for us to go have somebody watch a video, get to the end of that video, see an ad for a game and say, wow, I'd love to continue to play this at home. And then when you have them in that home setting, all of a sudden you have this kind of infinite exposure, right? It's exponential from there where maybe they have friends over, maybe it's family, but it takes what is typically digital, right? Okay, I watch a funny video. Maybe I send it to somebody on a text. Maybe I link it across. Maybe you're going to get targeted. Maybe you need to chain on YouTube because you watch one type of video, get another suggestion. 
it takes that into the physical world and then it becomes this very uh, valuable kind of uh, synergy effect, if you will, that I think blends it out, but ultimately lends credibility to the fact that your community is so strong. And that to me is one of the best demonstrations that I think about our perspective on the market of here's e-commerce done really well, right? And embedding it in the right way where it's not just let's run a Facebook ad for something for a million bucks and hope that we get you know a million and ten bucks back. It's instead figuring out how to embed it in the community and then have that affect you positively in the quarter business, which is getting scale and building content. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think so one of the things that we believe at Cut in our in the deepest part of our soul is that um that the traditional view of demographics as used to target people is kind of unhelpful sure. so there's this great um video that adam ruins everything did a while back called millennials don't exist and his point was just that like there is a group of people called millennials and there are people who are born between a certain uh, a certain range of years but that's not helpful to anyone. <laughs> so when you start saying things about that group of people um, that are really generalities, it's not actually a very useful exercise in whatever you're trying to do with it. And I think the way that some other folks have approached um, approach product development and direct consumer and commerce is by kind of treating people that way and saying like, well, you're all the same and you're going to want this thing that you know millennials want. And it's like, well, I don't know if that's a real connection that you can make. I think what we're trying to do is find these, as you said, communities um, who are who are really just people who are open um, and who are who are up for having these types of conversations. Probably who also are people who play games. Um, you find even between fear pong and truth or drink that there's a difference in audience. Um, the people who actually end up buying the game. Um, but I think the more that, you know, we do that over time, the better that we're going to get at it and the better we're going to get at, um, understanding, you know, how people are using these products and who is using them and, and things like that. So I think it, it maybe to put that really simply, like, rather than starting with this really vague and broad conception of who we were targeting for these games, we instead just kind of extended the experience to your point of a cut video to the context of a different type of IP. Wow. And that resonated with people for much the same reason. But you have to start with the, the IP. Yeah. And that's why the validation piece is so important. Yeah. Because you just don't know. And that's what I think takes me to the next question, which is really how the consumer has evolved, right? And I think, I agree with you. It's very difficult to say, look, look at the millennials, look at Gen Z, look at whoever, and, and make up these huge assumptions about people. And on the e-commerce side, it's easy to point to terrible examples of, Companies trying to kind of support the trends, right? They see that something's hot on Instagram. They see that something's hot on Twitter. They create a product and then try to flash sell it, right? And I think we see that all the time. And there is some success to that. I mean, I think there are businesses that do that, but it's not a sustainable position, right? It's okay, you found an opportunity and clearly you tried to capitalize on it. What I think it all ties back to is that the consumer is shifting, right? And I think the consumer expectation is also shifting when it comes to content, when it comes to engagement, when it comes to all these different things. And as we think about it, the evolution of digital media, which we started this conversation with, is indicative of the really the evolution of the consumer, right? And the fact that they're constantly chasing uh, a more engagement, more diversified engagement, and they want to feel things that are interactive, right? They want to be able to participate in the conversation. And e-commerce is a way to achieve that, but there are many others as well. And so 
I'd be curious as you think about the consumer evolution over time, you know, how you think about that and, and how you think about the consumer today, at least broadly, less so by here are the characteristics of it and more of the broad stroke changes that maybe have occurred over time. Yeah, interestingly, I think it's a good question. And it's really complicated because, you know, in one sense, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Sure. But also a thing I think that has changed um, that fundamentally has altered um, the way that what a consumer even means, especially after a certain period in time, is e-commerce, um, yeah. where even though it's still which is insane to me as a relatively small part of consumption. Um, I think if you looked at the amount of consumers who are primarily ordering on Amazon or online, it's going to trend somewhat younger. Um, but even now, like the, the traditional big box retailers, a lot of their consumption is also shifting to, to, to e-commerce in a way that like I've heard, you know, the, the, the brick and mortar to e-commerce funnel described as bricks to clicks, which is like the most insane thing ever that like your top of funnel for selling online is a store front, um, sure. which is something I think Amazon is trying to capitalize on a little bit with the Walmart as well. I think has done a very good job of that building genuine media properties. Yep. And then also, you know, there's a lot of convenience around delivery and things. I think what that means for the modern consumer in conjunction with the other things we've been talking about, which relate to our ability to kind of find our tribe and redefine who we are consistently, is that that the the type of spending that people do is just more all over the place. Um, that it's not as siloed as it probably once was. That that spending habits and patterns are not as habitual, um, and that you know you're going to find that. The way that that translates into a normal business is probably that the LTV of an average consumer is lower than it was historically um, in, in many different industries. I think, you know, when I say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Bringing it back now to our business, which so far is only developing games um, for consumers as a product, um, I think games are kind of timeless in a way. Um, and what we've done in our games that's different, if at all. Um, by the way, there's a couple other people who have created games like ours that are really great. There's a there's a brand called We're Not Really Strangers. Um, that's cool. Uh, and I think what we've done in our game is taken this mission, which is about using the games as a prompt to have these conversations, which then lead to understanding or increase theory of mind is how we talk about it. Um, that that is our our kind of frame that we put on on a game. But that could have existed, like. 200 years ago sure. and probably did in some form. Um, and so I think for us, the, the main way in which the consumer experience changes as it relates to our game is through uh, organic marketing. So, so it's sort of like the, I think it's called in marketing social proof, which is where you, you know, you see someone who you respect using a particular product and then you want to use that same product. Or like even an unboxing video might be a form of that where just by visually connecting with something, um, it convinces you that, you know, you need that as well. I think the biggest thing that, you know, we, the biggest opportunity for us in contrast to the past is going to be the fact that we have these video formats where 
people are playing the same game that you could also be playing at home. And in fact, um, in 2015, I was in line at a store and um, the people in front of me were talking about what they had done the weekend before. And, uh, and one of them said, we played this game called truth or drink. Um, and this is, you know, two years, three years before we ever turned it into a game, but what they had done is taken all the questions from the video and just made their own game. So I think, yeah. So I think that's really our opportunity is to listen when people have experiences like that. Uh, Absolutely. Let's talk about COVID-19 and kind of how that's affected the industry and affected you guys. Obviously there's been some fairly profound effects. I think one of the obvious ones is this idea of a content shortage. Um, obviously OTT, some of the linear players, even online players have struggled to create content. Uh, and that's created a supply and demand issue, right? For folks that were uh, having their portfolios burned through, whether they were using their evergreen portfolios, they were finding that their users are watching all of the content and they were worrying about churn, the OTT guys being obvious. Uh, there was that real supply and demand tension which has occurred. I think for many digital media businesses, advertising revenue wasn't exposure. There was volatility that happened, as uh, many folks listening know, CPC, CPM, all kind of went on the decline, and generally the fill rates had challenges, again, a supply and demand issue. Uh, and then maybe lastly, if you, if you talk about content shortages, if you talk about advertising challenges, then you can finally talk about sometimes viewership actually increased, right? You look at gaming businesses, uh, you look at some video content creation businesses, there might have been significant uplifts because people had more time to go look at digital media. Um, and so that's kind of the, the broad strokes of how we think about it. We'd be very curious how you think about it broadly, maybe how it affected CUD and, and kind of what your perspective is on it now. Yeah, so I think there's kind of four different highlights, if you will, to talk about COVID-19. The first is production. The second is um, is advertising. Yeah. The third is uh, games. And then the fourth is, I would just say learning, right? We talked about continuous learning earlier. So production, right? We went from 100% in studio to 0% literally overnight. Um, this is something that people who are listening who are also working in production in some capacity will resonate with because it affected all of us. Um, and, and in fact, like this was the story around the entire world as it related to many different industries um, where you just kind of turned off the pipe at some point and had to figure out, you know, how to recreate that. Um, And so on the production front, um, we went from zero uh, or a hundred in studio to zero. We started shooting a lot as everyone else did um, over zoom. We engaged with a, you know, kind of like a, a live, uh, live streaming tool called stage 10, which we used um, pretty extensively to kind of set up these conversations um, and set up these formats. We created new formats. Um, a couple that come to mind were around the world where we essentially did a version of our series, Keep It 100, but we had people submit footage on their own. We gave them some very basic content guidelines. Another one was a format called Get Stuff, which was like a scavenger hunt within people's homes, both like really fun and interesting formats, um, but kind of lost something, right, in the way of, of producing them um, in that way. Um, moving to today, we're probably 20% back in the studio at this point. We're in Washington state in Seattle, and they've released, um, some pretty, uh, specific guidelines about how you can shoot and how you can't. Um, and so we're 20% in studio, still 80% producing in these other places. Um, and we'll just continue to, to manage things as they go. I think, I said the fourth thing was continuous learning. I'm going to bring it up right now because 
this is the area where it applies the most. Um, what COVID I think has taught us more than anything else is that the world is kind of exactly as ambiguous as we think it is. And that's why our mission is to make people comfortable with ambiguity. Um, typically we're talking about social issues um, when we're talking about ambiguity, but even situations like COVID are an opportunity for us to test how comfortable we really are with situations that take us by surprise. And so as a company that is constantly trying to develop new IP, whether it's linear TV formats or video formats for social or games, this has been an opportunity to be forced to have a constraint that you're not going to shoot in the studio, even though that's where you shot everything that has really challenged us uh, in a, in a helpful way. I mentioned a couple examples of it around the world, having access to all this talent um, from, you know, different countries, but it's also really tested our, the limits of our communication with each other, um, our ability to uh, work with people around the world on production. Um, and so I think the point is that on the continuous learning front, there's a lot of really positive things for us that when we are back in the studio, as much as we will be, um, which might be less than it was before, uh, will be better than we were before. Um, so that's that's kind of production and continuous learning. For advertising, you're absolutely right. Um, advertising was down. Advertising is actually recovering quite a bit at this point. I think you see kind of you see these uh, these trends intersect with each other um, as people get back out into the world, as they're doing more things, as they're learning how to live in this version of the world where COVID is a, a real thing. Uh, I remember Elon Musk tweeting uh, the the usage. Uh, I don't know why he has access to this data, by the way, because it's kind of scary, but it was the usage of the battery packs in Teslas over time. And, you know, around March 15th, in every country, in every territory, it went down to almost nothing. And then you see it start to come back. And I think if you think about... Um, the way that advertising is recovering, the way that media buyers are going to be spending more money. It's it's not like, you know, people aren't trying to sell products during the holidays. And so we're seeing advertising recover as as these things continue to, to shift back to normal. On the supply and demand front, what I'll say there is um, we have, we don't really have uh, very much OTT distribution, although that's a big priority for us in the next couple of years. Sure. And, and I think that, to your point is where the shortage has been because on, I read a Adobe research report from a couple of weeks ago that said that in June, mobile viewership was down almost 40%. So people are watching on these, this is what happened to Quibi or one of the things that happened to them. Um, but people are, were watching much more on, uh, on their TVs at home, understandably, than they were on their phones. And this led to the shortage that you're talking about and also I think led to some of the diminution in ad rates. Um, this affected us a lot because we are, are not very much on OTT platforms, except for as mediated by platforms like YouTube. Um, so that's advertising. It's, it was down a lot, but it's coming back. Um, and then the last thing um, for us that was affected by COVID uh, was the games business. Um, this was affected though in a really positive way where Understandably, people at home who, you know, were stuck at home for long periods of time were spending more money on games that they could play at home. And we saw our sales increase. I think the high watermark was probably 300%. Um, we set the high watermark for a single day of sales. Um, 
And we're seeing the business kind of recover back to normal a little bit, although it's slightly up. Um, but that's really, to me, what kind of helped us to get through. It was kind of the perfect counterpoint to uh, to the advertising ecosystem during the same period. Um, and I think, you know, if we wrap up with kind of continuous learning, then the idea there is what can that sales spike because of COVID teach us about, you know, our strategy for games and its value. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you a final question, you know, and it's a big one. Where are we headed, right? What what comes next? And as you look out kind of into the crystal ball over the next couple of years, what do you think about and what are the kind of the key trends that you look at? I think that, you know, you've said immersive a few times on this call. Um, this is something that um, we think about as much as you can um, as storytellers, you know, on these platforms. Sure. Um, where, where you, I don't know if, if you follow, I, you probably do follow, you know, the, the trajectory of VR and AR, but it's been really interesting Very to awesome. watch it. <laughs> it's been really interesting to watch it become this really buzzy thing. And then this, like, you know, this big write down in some cases and then buzzy again. And I think the reality of how it progresses and grows will be somewhere, you know, in between the balance of that buzziness, which sure. is, I guess, just how life works. Um, for us, I think the opportunity that that pre presents and kind of the the age that that will usher us into is really just another opportunity for us to do what our core focus is, um, which is to provoke these conversations or to promote these conversations that lead to understanding. And I think what's interesting if you apply that that mission or that aspiration to the world of immersive um, content is that if you know for people who have done had a, even the most low latency uh, virtual reality experience like it's an incredible tool for empathy um, and so as we continue to interact using technology i think a big theme will be that you know we can find ways to continue to explore and and deepen our mission using the new types of technology i think the counterpoint to that or the, the kind of caveat is that I think another thing I'm seeing on the horizon is the swing of the pendulum back towards people wanting to experiencing things together in a non-digital way. Sure. <laughs> um, and that's why I love our games business because that's what it's about. Um, it's about creating an opportunity for that. And so we kind of have the, the counterpoint to the digital video viewing experience in the in-person game experience. Um, but I think we're at a point right now where people have a lot of really good questions and challenges to how the platforms that we're all reliant on have evolved and what their responsibility is in, uh, in, in relation to things like the truth, for example, and, and news and, and facts and all the things that like historically were not really questioned, but now are seemingly up in the air. And so I think the second thing that we'll see thematically in the future is a big kind of tug of war. Um, and I think ultimately, like, these platforms will probably be regulated more than they are now, sure. and that that will be a good thing. And, um, and we'll continue to benefit from our relationship with them. Um, but it's just something for us to, to be aware of. Um, let me think if there's anything else. I think for our business, um, the 
the core component that that really glues the mission to each of the lines of business, which are again the TV business, originals, the games business, um, which could be other products, by the way, in the future, um, and then the video format development business yeah. is this idea of community. Um, and I'm going to be honest; like, it's not something that we have um, that we have dialed in at all. Cut has largely, since its inception, been a a channel or a content creator that distributes content that we know is good, that we know is leading to the types of conversations that we want to happen, but has not historically been very good at having those conversations with people as a company. Um, and I think because of that, we're missing out on a huge part of the opportunity that the internet affords us, which is to have that conversation. Um, if, you know, if I, if this was MTV, we're talking about 15 years ago, that's just an impossibility. You can't do that. You're just distributing content. People are fans of it. There's not really any way for them to tell you that there's not any way for you to talk to them, but because that is an opportunity that we have, I think our future needs to revolve a lot more around investing into developing those communities, identifying them, um, and ultimately engaging more deeply with our audience. And that is going to be, I think the currency of the future for, for everyone in, in media. Well, I think that's a good spot to end it. This has been, uh, this has been really great. I'm glad that you could join us. I think everybody's really going to enjoy it. So, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was awesome. Uh, all right, everybody. Bye-bye.